What's up, guys? This is Kayla Taylor, and you're listening to the final episode of Listen to Me Speak for the season and the year. But don't worry, guys, I will be back in 2021 with new episodes. But I feel like it's only right that we take a little bit of hiatus so that we all can enjoy our holidays. But before I start off the episode, I want to thank all of you guys so much for supporting me this year with this podcast. You know, I've been wanting to do a podcast for so long and, you know, 2020 has thrown us all for a loop and there were a lot of things that we had to get adjusted to and a lot of things we didn't plan for. And I guess if there's one positive I can think about that came out of this year is me starting this podcast and, you know, trying something new and, you know, I'm going to be honest, I've completely fallen in love with doing this podcast So if I could say anything positive about 2020, it's that it finally gave me the kick in the ass to finally start this podcast, and I've had such an incredible time, and next year I'm hoping to take this podcast to an even bigger level. But thank you guys for supporting me this far, and I can't wait to see what I come up with next. I think my first new goal for 2021 is to finally get a guest speaker on the show, whether it's one of my friends or if I get lucky enough to get a celebrity interview, that is going to be my goal for next year. So let's get right into this episode because I'm actually really excited about this episode. I've been planning it for probably months in advance, the idea of kind of doing a wrap up musically for 2020 of ranking the best albums and songs of the year so i'm really really looking forward to doing this episode but before we get into all of that i just want to start the episode off so let's get right into things so i wanted to start off with marvel and marvel announced a whole ton of new content not only dropping in theaters but also on disney plus for 2021 some of this content includes Loki, the Falcon, and the Winter Soldier, Miss Marvel, and a whole lot more. Literally, if I sat here and named all of the content that they dropped, this episode would be three hours long. They seriously teased a whole lot of stuff. Um, Captain Marvel 2 has been announced for November 11, 2022. I'm excited for this because I loved the first movie. I'm just hoping that Lashana Lynch, who played um, Carol's best friend Maria, comes back for the sequel because I really liked her character, but now she's, I believe she's in the new Bond movie, and I think she's kind of taking over the Bond mantle, so I don't know if she's going to have time to do Captain Marvel 2, but I really do hope um, that she does. I know they'll have an older actress playing Monica Rambeau, who is Maria's daughter that Carol helped raise. So we know there's been a huge time jump, so that could explain Lashana Lynch's absence from the movie, but I am hoping that she at least makes a cameo. And in the comics, I believe Monica takes over the Captain Marvel mantle eventually, so this makes sense that they have done a time jump and aged the character. Plus, after the snap with Thanos, Monica being older does kind of make sense since time is all weird now. Either way, I am excited for the sequel to come out because I loved Captain Marvel more than I expected to. I don't think the trailers really did that movie justice. So now I really, really love the movie and I'm really looking forward to the sequel and hopefully it lives up to the first film. 
I was hoping there'd be more info on the movie The Eternals, since that was supposed to be released in November of this year, but it ended up getting pushed back due to the coronavirus, and Black Widow was supposed to take its uh, time slot for the year, but now Black Widow. I don't know when they're releasing that movie. Um, But hopefully The Eternals comes out next year. I'm still on the fence about seeing Black Widow. I kind of don't think it's come out yet, but I am on the fence of... Um, with seeing that movie because I feel like that movie should have been done years ago and now spoiler alert you know Black Widow died so we kind of know how we kind of know the fate of her character so it just doesn't make sense to now do an origin story on her after she's died but it is what it is but I am looking forward to the Eternals but I don't think there's any new information on when that movie is going to be released but hopefully within early next year they kind of give us a new release date but it's looking like a big year for Marvel and Disney Plus altogether, and honestly, I can't wait to watch all this new content. I'm going to try to really hurry up and finish um, the shows that I'm currently watching because I'm watching so many shows. I don't know how I'm going to be able to balance all of that and then adding the Disney Plus content on there too. So pray for me, y'all, because I have a lot of TV to watch. But we are in a pandemic for now, so I'm taking advantage of the time that I'm afforded right now and trying to watch as many new shows as possible. Moving on from Disney Plus and Marvel, Ariana Grande's concert movie is dropping on December 21st, aka my sister's birthday. Um, it's dropping on Netflix. I talked about it a little bit last week saying that it looked like she was teasing the movie and um, I was right. My sister and I do plan on watching the movie together because I went and saw the concert live last year but she wasn't able to go so this will be like her um getting to see the concert from home and so it looks like we're going to be watching that together and that's perfect that's like a perfect little Christmas gift for her um a little bit about the concert film it obviously contains clips um and moments from her concert particularly her shows in London I'm su- I was surprised that it wasn't going to be a compilation of several of her concerts from other places but it doesn't really matter to me because I was so far back um, in the road during her concert in Brooklyn that I went to last year. So I won't be seen in the film anyway, so I don't really care. Um, but I'll still be watching, like I said, when it drops, and it'll be fun to kind of relive the concert. Um, moving on from Ariana Grande, Lizzie Mag- the Lizzie McGuire reboot that was set to be released on Disney+, and the Empire spinoff featuring Cookie was not picked up on Fox. I can't say I'm surprised by either of these shows not um, really getting greenlit because, you know, for the Lizzie McGuire film, I think it was earlier in the year, there were reports and even um, Hilary Duff herself came out point blank period and said that they were having a lot of creative differences behind the scenes on where to take Lizzie McGuire. Hilary Duff felt like now that she's a grown woman and Lizzie McGuire by extension is a grown woman, she should be tackling more um, adult topics, more mature um, storylines. And because it's Disney Plus and Disney is very family oriented, they still wanted to give the Lizzie McGuire reboot that family feel. I'm on Liz, uh, I was almost going to call her Lizzie. I'm on Hillary's side with this one as someone who grew up on Lizzie McGuire, who is now an adult herself. If they're going to do the, do the reboot, I feel like it should be catered to its core audience. And the core audience of Lizzie McGuire are now all adults. Some of us even have kids. Some of us are married. Some of us are just, like I said, just grown adults who kind of want to see what an adult Lizzie McGuire 
is. We don't want to see the kiddie stuff that we grew up on as a kid. We loved it as a kid, but that's not going to appeal to its core audience that are now adults now. So I definitely agree with Hilary Duff. I know they were trying to move it to Hulu like they did with Love, Simon. Love, Simon was supposed to be on Disney+, Plus, I believe, but because the character is gay and Disney felt like that was too mature for um, its family-friendly audience, which, you know, is dumb. They moved it to Hulu and they were able to secure that deal and Disney was fine with that. But because Lizzie McGuire was such a staple for the Disney Channel, I'm not surprised that Disney Plus was trying to hand over the rights to Hulu. So that didn't work. And then I didn't hear much else about um, the Lizzie McGuire reboot. I knew that it was still kind of moving forward. Didn't hear much else other than that. And then yesterday it was revealed from Hilary Duff that they had decided that you know, due to the creative differences and them not being able to find middle ground, the show is just not being released. And, you know, I've said this time and time again about reboots and revivals, that not everything needs a reboot, not everything needs a revival. I think that Hollywood has now gotten caught in this um, pattern of trying to make money as easily as they can and what's the easiest thing to make money off of. Old classics that people love that they know are sure to be a hit because it's a reboot off of a prior hit. And I think that just shows Hollywood's lack of creativity. And I think it's something that's become super um, obvious to a lot of people these days. Um, I just talked about the iCarly um, reboot. Or did I talk about that last week or do I plan to talk about it this week? I don't know. It's been my schedule for um, my podcast has been kind of all over the place because of the holidays. But um Oh yeah, I'm supposed to talk about it, about it this week. I just went through my notes. Um, but there are a lot of reboots have, that have been announced and some of them are hit or miss. And I feel like not not everything needs one. And I think because there's been so many reboots lately that we're kind of just over it. And so I can't say I'm super sad about Lizzie McGuire's reboot not working out. I mean, I'm sad for the crew and the writers who have lost jobs because this didn't work out. But I don't think Lizzie McGuire was something that needed to come back. I was going to watch it for sure because, like I said, it's more of a nostalgic thing because I loved it as a kid. But, you know, there are a lot of reboots that I've watched that have ruined shows and movies that I used to love. So um, I'd rather, I guess, it not come out than for it to ruin um, the classic that Lizzie McGuire was. So, um, yeah, that's really all I have to say about the Lizzie McGuire thing. Like I said, the Empire spinoff, I'm not surprised that that didn't work out. I think a huge part of them even wanting to do the spinoff was because Empire didn't get the proper ending that it should have had because of Corona. They weren't able to really film a finale, so they used the episodes that they did film and scenes that they did film and kind of combined them together for the finale. And that finale was kind of all over the place. And I think that Lee Daniels and the crew, the writers and the crew of Empire really wanted to kind of give that part of the show a like a proper, they wanted to close it properly and they were going to use part of the spinoff to do that. Um, I also don't think that it made sense to do a cookie-centered spinoff of Empire, especially because it was going to be about her life after the events of Empire. Um, I'm assuming Lucius would have been involved unless they killed his character off, off screen. I personally think that the original ending was supposed to end with Lucius dying. But because they couldn't film it, that's not what happened. I don't know if they were going to kill him off screen in the spinoff or in the beginning of the spinoff and she was going to take over Empire. I don't know how they would have made that work. I love Cookie. She's one of my favorite TV characters of the 2010s. But I don't think that 
Empire needed a cookie-centered spinoff. I think proper spinoffs are better when it's about a kind of a character that was kind of background or a character that didn't have a whole bunch of screen time and then putting the center on them. Cookie was a big part of Empire. She was a big part. Taraji was the big part of why the show was so good. I don't really think that they needed to do a cookie-centered spinoff. And I think that Empire lost a lot of its steam. A lot of what made this show good in the beginning, it kind of burnt out by the end of the show, which is it's common with a lot of shows. Um, even old classic shows like, you know, Glee or even shows um, from way back in the day that were good, that were on for a long period of time, the writers and the creative teams just eventually they run out of steam and um, that was no different than Empire. So I kind of don't think the Empire spinoff with Cookie would have really been any good. And this is coming from someone who really liked the character. So again, I'm not surprised about the Empire spinoff not picking up at Fox but I think they are still shopping it um, off to ABC and they mentioned another network that I'm blanking on right now, but it's still being shopped. So it's not out of the realm of possibilities of the show getting picked up, but I kind of think that if Fox didn't pick it up, they're really not going to have that much of a um, chance at getting ABC to pick up the show because ABC, it's so hard to get a show to, to land and stick on that network. I can't see them picking up the Empire spinoff, but we will see. Moving on, The Real Housewives of Potomac Reunion Part 1 aired this week. And no, yeah, it aired this week, this Sunday. And I do want to give a quick spoiler alert to those of you who have not seen the episode yet. I know there are also a lot of people that are binge watching the show on Hulu now because this season has been so crazy. It sparked a lot of people's interest in getting into the show. And so I know a lot of people are starting it from the beginning. So I wanted to give you some time to kind of fast forward past this segment so that it's not spoiled for you. Now, this reunion was fucking bonkers is the best way to, to describe it because um first of all a little bit of a background for those of you who don't watch the show but I don't want you guys to be super super lost on what I'm talking about so pretty much on these reality tv shows specifically the housewives there's always one of the castmates that end up ends up being the villain for the season in the season um Monique is the villain after she put her hands on Candace unprovoked uh, I don't want to say unprovoked but um Candace didn't put her hands on her first so she was the initiator of this physical fight and after shit goes down most of the women aside from Karen and Ashley don't want to be anywhere near her they stop you know inviting her to her events out of respect for Candace and pretty much alienating her so coming into this reunion I knew that Monique had some shit up her sleeves because I feel like she was just tired of being the villain she was tired of being picked apart she was tired of being picked on and if you remember last year at that reunion there were rumors that Giselle was digging around the rumorville and had plans to bring up some shit about her and her marriage to I think her husband's name is Chris she was planning on revealing rumors and revealing secrets at the reunion so I guess Monique wanted to give um, Giselle a taste of her own medicine because homegirl came to the reunion with this thick ass binder full of secrets and I'm pretty sure it's not just secrets on Giselle I'm pretty sure it's secrets on all of the women but because her and Giselle were getting into it and Giselle has pretty much been trying to make her life hell ever since she joined the show Monique had enough now Giselle is known to be in everybody's business 
she's the first one to um, bring up rumors that she's heard in the so on the quote unquote streets. She's the first one to question the ladies about their marital woes and their relationship problems. But Giselle herself has never really had a steady relationship since being on the show, except for with one guy. And she was kind of very weird about that relationship. She kind of kept a lot of it off screen. She didn't bring this man around any of the women. I think maybe only um, Robin had met the guy. And her kids really liked this guy, whatever. It didn't work. And she decides to get back with her ex-husband, who is a pastor who has been known to cheat on her and have kids outside of their marriage and relationship. And they split. For some reason, she decided to get back with this guy, and I think a major reason for that was because the dating scene wasn't really working out so well for Giselle, and she was kind of settling um, for her ex-husband. Her kids aren't fans of them being back together, and she was very, very secretive about this relationship. Even Robin hadn't been around him since they got back together. Um, She wouldn't bring him with her to any of the events that the women had thrown. She was very, very weird and protective and secretive about her getting back with Jamal. That's the husband's name. And so Monique decided to show up to the reunion with this, like I said, this very thick binder with receipts of Jamal yet again talking to other women, dealing with other women while he's supposed to be with Giselle. Now, this is not a shock to anybody. I don't think it was really a shock to Giselle either because he has been known to cheat. And not only that, but he's hardly ever in um Potomac with them he's always in Atlanta or in other places I think during the whole current season of the show he was on screen maybe twice he was he was hardly ever around and apparently there's a rumor that he now has another baby on the way with this woman that Monique had the receipts from where they were messaging back and forth with him telling the woman that you know him and Giselle are only back together for the cameras it's all for show but they're not really together like that And when Giselle or the other women who were kind of defending Giselle tried to say that the receipts were fake, Monique then proceeded to rattle out Jamal's number and Giselle confirmed that it was his number. And I think what was so shocking about that was not the fact that Monique really had like receipts or was revealing that her husband isn't shit essentially, which is what we all know. I think how stunned Giselle was and how silent she was was what really shocked me Giselle is always one to kind of try to have the last word like I said she's kind of the bully of the show she picks on a lot of the women on Karen on Monique on Ashley from time to time and so it was such a shock to see her so stunt to silence I think deep down she knew all of this she knew about the the newest baby she knew that he was creeping around um I think she was shocked that Monique brought all those receipts and proof to the reunion and that she rattled off his number. And a lot of people were like, oh, Giselle should have lied and act like that wasn't his number. But I feel like, again, it would have been proved that it was his number and she would have been further embarrassed. Um, It was very clear um, and obvious that Giselle was embarrassed when Monique rattled out his number and was talking about the text messages between him and this other woman. And I think a huge part of her shock and embarrassment is that that's the first time that anybody on that show has really called her out in that nature with receipts like that and I don't think that I don't think anybody likes to be embarrassed but I think Giselle really doesn't like being embarrassed and put on blast which is why she was trying to keep her relationship with Jamal a secret because she didn't want to give the women any um she didn't want to give the women 
any like um insight or into her private world because then they could have used that information that she gave to them to turn against her in this um way and i think that's why she kept her other relationship with that other guy she was dating a secret as well because she didn't want something like this to happen because she knew that it was only a matter of time that one of them was going to get revenge on her because she's been known to do the same thing to them. So I think that's really why she kept that relationship with Jamal a secret. And maybe she knew about the baby early on when they were first getting back together. So um, I think that's what made that revelation so shocking. It wasn't actually the fact that Jamal was creeping around on her, that he had another baby on the way. It was the fact that Monique had, like reliable receipts a whole binder full of them and had his number and had these messages and it was very clear like I said that Giselle was embarrassed I don't think she was expecting the binder now I think Karen knew that Monique was going to start some shit with that binder and I'm pretty sure she was all for it because Giselle gave Karen hell when her and her husband Ray were going through their issues with the law I think it was like something with taxes it usually is always taxes with celebrities and she wore a short she even wore a shirt poking fun at the situation so I think ever since that moment Karen and Giselle haven't really been able to really have a real friendship again I think that Karen is still really bitter and upset with her for that and I think she has every right to be because I think Giselle was really foul for that um, but it's very clear that um, Karen still holds that grudge. So I think any reason to come at Giselle or to give her a dose of her own medicine, I think Karen is all for that. And I definitely think that Karen and Ashley knew that binder was coming out. And even though I see a lot of the, the evil nature of Monique that Candace was talking about now, I can't say that I feel bad for Giselle. Because like I said, she's been known to do this and some worse things to the women on the show and I think it was just a case of her getting a dose of her own medicine point blank period now because part one was so crazy and the husbands haven't even come out to the reunion yet I know that parts two and I think maybe three I think this reunion deserves three parts I think those um the remaining parts of this reunion are going to be even crazier because usually part one of the reunion is kind of like the slow build up to a lot of the fights and arguments that go on during these reunions but in part one it's like right out the gate they already started fighting and arguing with each other and and the guns were drawn um and I'm, I can't say I'm surprised because this season I think was so crazy and so interesting because so many of them had these these problems that have been building for seasons and then they finally just kind of exploded. This season has just been nuts. So I can't say that I'm surprised that part one already started off crazy, but because it did, I know parts two and three are going to be even crazier. And I'm here for the drama. I think Potomac has surpassed um, Atlanta at this point in time. Um, I think that this season of Potomac is a lot better than the past couple of seasons of Atlanta. I'm starting to kind of get bored with Atlanta, if I'm being honest, and Potomac is heating up, and I can't wait to see what parts two and three bring. So moving on to music, it's highly rumored, and it's most likely true at this point, that Eminem is dropping a B-side to his album, Music to be Murdered by, which dropped in January. It's rumored to be coming out on Friday. I'm going to be honest, I haven't listened to that album in a while, so I'm going to try my best to revisit it later today before the b-side drops but i will say that music to be murdered by is eminem's best album in a long time so hopefully the b-side lives up to that 
it I think it's appropriate to call it a B-side instead of a deluxe because if we're going by the rumored track list, it's like 14 new songs. So it is really another new album. It's not really a deluxe. It's still following the theme, I'm assuming, of Music To Be Murdered By, but really it's it's more of a, uh, a B-side. And I, I think that going forward for artists who are dropping deluxe albums, if your deluxe album contains more than seven new songs... I, and that's putting it nicely. I really should say five. If it's containing more songs than that, then you really should just call it a B-side or an alternative because it is essentially a new album. I'm talking about Chris Brown too when he releases those expanded or reloaded additions to his albums. Just call it a side B because it is essentially another new album. Um, so I like that he's naming this uh, a B-side instead of just saying it's a deluxe. There were also a lot of rumors that J. Cole was set to drop his album, The Fall Off, last week, which seemed to come out of thin air to me. Apparently, Zane Lowe said that there would be some kind of musical surprise last Friday night, and after people on Twitter theorized that it was J. Cole, um, Zane Lowe then quickly cleared up the rumors and said that he wasn't, but people still were expecting J. Cole to drop something, and they were obviously disappointed because J. Cole never dropped anything last Friday. I don't know how many times people have to learn their lessons about these sources about surprise releases, but I've stopped holding any stock to them. I personally didn't think Cole was dropping, so I wasn't disappointed. However, and at the time that I was really thinking about these rumors, I did think that maybe he would drop before the end of the year because he did wipe a decent amount of his tweets off of Twitter, and now only his tweets from 2009 are up there. So I thought, you know, maybe this is a hint. Um, and I was thinking that, you know, we didn't get it last week, but we're definitely going to get it the 18th. Um, but as we're approaching the 18th, which is literally tomorrow, as of the time that I'm recording this episode, I really am not super confident that J. Cole is going to drop before the end of the year. If anything, maybe he'll surprise me and drop a lead single from the fall off before the end of the year, but I think Corona really ruined a lot of artists' plans that were planning to drop, Drake, Kendrick, and Cole. And so I think that there is a good chance that maybe J. Cole will drop first quarter of the year. It seems like ever since Drake announced that he was dropping in January, now all of these other artists are announcing that they're either dropping in January or the first quarter. The first quarter is typically a very slow period for music, but in light of Corona and a lot of in light of a lot of artists having to change their plans because of Corona, I think a lot of them are trying to start off 2021 with new music, especially now that the vaccine is out. They're trying to drop music so that they can tour um, by the end of the year. So. I- I think that it's going to be a busy month for January, and at this point, it's looking like J. Cole is probably not dropping the fall off until 2021, but I'd love to be pleasantly surprised, but at this point, if, if he doesn't drop anything tomorrow, I can't really see him dropping anything this year. But even though J. Cole didn't do a surprise drop last Friday, Taylor Swift did, I was really caught off guard when she announced that she was dropping her second album of 2020 last Friday. I'm pretty sure everybody was. Um, and it was it was a, announced in the similar fashion that Folklore was announced in July. It came out of nowhere. People were not expecting. I don't even real. I don't follow Taylor Swift like that because I don't really care for her. I like some of her music, but I don't really care for her personally enough to follow her on social media or keep up with her. But, um... I think even her fans didn't realize that she was working on music when Folklore dropped, and it was the same with Evermore. 
Um, but that is the title of the el- of the new album, and it's a sister record to fo- to folklore, as she describes it as. Um, after listening to Evermore a couple of times, I quickly came to the conclusion that Folklore is the better album. Since Evermore is technically, I can't even really say the sequel album because it really doesn't continue any of the stories told on Folklore, but considering it is like a sister album, um, to Folklore, I wasn't surprised that Folklore was the better album because it's kind of rare when a sequel album or an album that drops so close together than the first album is better. I think that um, the storytelling and even just, I feel like she was, how can I say this? I feel like she was connected, um, I think she was connected more deeply to the music and the themes that she was telling on Folklore than she was on Evermore. She describes, you know, that situation of, you know, after writing Folklore, they just couldn't stop writing songs. And I think that Evermore was just an overflow of the songs they couldn't stop writing. And they didn't have as much of the focus and the, um, they didn't have as much of the focus that Folklore had. I think Evermore was just like, you know what, we we keep writing songs, we like these songs, let's just give them another album. But I think Folklore was more, um, it was a more focused album, maybe there was more time, I think there was more time on Folklore than there was on Evermore. Hopefully that made sense, it made sense to me. Um, but I think that's why that album is better than Evermore. Evermore isn't a bad album, but like I said, the music on Folklore is just stronger, maybe that's a better way to say things. Um, sonically, Evermore does sound a lot like Folklore and essentially sounds like a second disc from the, um, first album. Like if Folklore was a double album, Evermore could be the second disc, you know? Um, Taylor Swift, her strongest skill is her songwriting and the lyrics on this Evermore album are, of course, beautifully poetic. May not be the biggest fan of Taylor Swift as a person, but I always give her credit on her incredible writing. You can't take that away from her. With her albums, I always have to sit and listen more than once, you know, with the lyrics in front of me because there's always things that I end up catching later on that I missed the first time around. And, you know, I love music like that because it kind of forces the listeners to return to albums. But I wanted to talk about the three standout tracks on this album, which are Willow, No Body, No Crime, and Ivy. So I'm going to start off with Willow. I think I really like this song because it subtly reminds me of one of my favorite Taylor Swift songs, which is Wildest Dreams. It just has this really dream-esque feeling in its production. That's really why I love a lot of Ariana Grande and Janae Ayuko's music, because they have like this dreamy, you know, like production, um in their music and I really can't describe it as anything other than dreamy and it's just really angelic and Willow definitely has this aspect. It just sounds really soft and mellow. I think that's what makes it a strong intro into Evermore because it's a pretty mellow and slow album overall. My favorite line on this song is quote, you know that my train could take you home anywhere else is hollow. I'm begging for you to take my hand, wreck my plans, that's my man. Because I think this is just a really poetic way of saying that because the narrator is in love, that they're willing to go anywhere their lover wants to go because they trust them so deeply. And I say narrator because um, Taylor Swift on Evermore and on Folklore, she's writing from the perspective of different people. She's not necessarily writing from her perspective or based off of her life. And I think that's why Folklore was such a good album because... It just shows how good of a writer Taylor Swift is that she's essentially writing these made-up stories 
and you listen to them and you feel them deeply as if they're really her stories or maybe they're they feel like your stories and I think that's why people really took to folklore and I think that's why they're taking to this Evermore album as well. The next song I wanted to talk about is Nobody No Crime. You know I'm a sucker for great storytelling in music and the storytelling on this track is phenomenal and I really do hope that Taylor gives this song a music video because it deserves. This song is a return to Taylor's country roots which is something she doesn't do as often anymore. I'm not a big fan of country music by any means but the production and even the vocal style is reminiscent of Carrie Underwood's style and I love some of Carrie's music. And it's funny that I made this comparison in my head because I went on Twitter later and saw that this song has actually been compared to one of Carrie Underwood's songs. Uh, It's called Goodbye Earl. So the storyline of um, Nobody No Crime is about a woman who suspects that her husband has been cheating on her and then suddenly she disappears and her husband then moves in with his mistress. Now the narrator can't prove that he killed her friend so she kills him and frames his mistress for the murder. The song is honestly a wild ride and the production is really good too. Taylor found a way to mix good storytelling with, you know, also making sure the song had strong song structure. It didn't just sound like a story, it actually sounded musical, it sounded like a song. On Evermore and even Folklore, I feel like Taylor got too lost in the storytelling and the music didn't sound or feel musical musical, or it lacked some song structure if that makes sense, but on Nobody No Crime, it managed to meld in both. The next and last song I want to talk about from Evermore is a song called Ivy. I think what makes this song a standout is the way it's written. Um, It's poetic and it actually sounds like a story and it very much fits in with the themes on her folklore album. I never thought Taylor was the strongest singer and I still don't think so, but her voice is well suited on softer acoustic production so her voice sounds nice on this track. My favorite line from this song is quote, My pain fits in the palm of your freezing hand, taking mine, but it's been promised to another. Oh, I can't stop you putting roots in my dreamland, my house of stone, your ivy grows, and now I'm covered in you. And I really like these lines because again, like I said about the song, it's poetically written. And I really do think this is just a clever and, you know, a really beautiful way of saying that, you know, I can't really stop you know, myself from falling in love with you. I can't stop you from falling in love with me and creating all of these fantasies of us being together, even though I'm with and married to somebody else. I just think that this was, this line was really beautifully written and this song overall was beautifully written. Like I said about Folklore, Evermore is truly a mood album for me. I have to be sad or just laying around doing nothing to really listen to it and enjoy it. I think Evermore is just one of those albums I would throw on if I wanted to just lay down in my bed and relax, which is what I did last night. I threw on a few of these songs um, last night before I went to bed. And I'm not trying to throw shade or say that, you know, it's so boring that it puts me to sleep, but just certain albums are meant for certain moods and you enjoy them more when you're in a particular mood. I think the songwriting on this album is excellent, but the production was boring and tended to sound alike in a lot of the songs. Folklore was good and this kind of sound worked for it, but on Evermore it just sounded a little bit boring and sounded like they were trying to strike gold twice. Going forward though, I'd like to hear Taylor move on from the sound and these themes into something different. Um, I can't really say that Taylor is the type to kind of 
give you a lot of the same sounding music every time she drops an album. I think each album is pretty distinct. So I'd be surprised if she gave a, if her next album sounded like Folklore and um, Evermore, but who knows. Like I said, Evermore isn't a bad album, just a little bit boring and it's more of a mood album for me. But moving on from music, I did want to talk about uh, the movies that I've watched lately because again, like I said, now that I have HBO Max, I've been watching a lot more movies again and so I wanted to talk about some of them. So starting off, I do want to say a slight spoiler alert for these movies. You know, I'm not sure if any of you guys have any interest in seeing them at some point. So if you do, I would just, you know, skip the section and come back to it. Or if you don't care about spoilers or, you know, you hear the movie and you're like, oh, I'm not going to watch this, then definitely listen because I would like you guys to hear my thoughts on these movies, but I also don't want to spoil anything for you. So the first movie I want to talk about is a movie called Unforgettable. This movie stars Katherine Heigl from Grey's Anatomy and Rosario Dawson. Now, this movie was batshit crazy. So first off, I just want to say that this movie is a 10 out of 10 because to me, or not even just to me, I think anybody who watches this movie, it stands out from a lot of the Fatal Attraction-esque movies that have been released as of yet. The ending was a lot different than the usual, but still left you on edge with a slight cliffhanger, but not in the way a lot of these Fatal Attraction-esque movies leave you where it's like, oh my god, what happens? Did the do these people get arrested? Um, and things like that, and you're trying to figure out how the movie would have ended. This movie kind of gives you a proper ending, but a little bit of a cliffhanger that if they decided to do a sequel, they could expand on it. Katherine Heigl tends to play a lot of unlikable characters, but she really played this character well. The way she was able to emote such coldness was really believable and made the character seem even more unhinged. She also just has a naturally stern face, so that also helps. I think can't I think Catherine was the standout in this film and it was her performance that really kept me on the edge of my seat like she really played this character a little too well. I definitely recommend seeing this movie if you haven't yet cuz it's definitely worth it. And if you're like me where you like those thrillers, you like a lot of the fatal attraction like movies, you'll definitely enjoy this one because it's really good and I think it's kind of one of the more underrated movies in those types of um in those types of films. I don't see a lot of people talk about it. I didn't see a lot of people talk about the movie when it came out, but it's definitely worth two hours of your time. Moving on, I also watched the movie It. So if you know me, you know I absolutely hate horror movies and I hate clowns, but my interest with this movie um, was piqued because a lot of people I know praised this movie when it came out. So I finally watched it at night like a total dumbass and it freaked me the hell out of course it freaked me the hell out I hate horror movies and I'm not gonna lie I had to watch a lot of like light comedy before I went to sleep just in case because I tend to have crazy dreams anyway whether it's because I watched a horror movie or I ate too close to when I went to bed or anything I just have crazy dreams so I wanted to avoid having crazy dreams so I watched like a bunch of king of queens uh, the king of queen episodes because I've been watching that show lately so I watched a couple of those to like you know, make myself laugh, and so that it wasn't the last thing I saw before I went to bed. Of course, I still had a crazy dream anyway, but, you know, I tried. Anyway, back to the movie. First of all, the actor who plays it was very convincing. He was just so chilling and creepy, and his vocal inflections made him even creepier. Like, he would do this weird high-pitched voice thing when he would talk, and then all of a sudden, it would go from high to really deep, and it would freak me the fuck out. 
Um, it had a few jump scares throughout the movie, but what really made this movie scary was that it played on the fears of each of the children and became those physical fears for each child. So it looked like different things to each of the children based on their fears. So it only existed as long as they were afraid. And it was just really unnerving because of some of the, the children's fears. I think the script was really good and it had a strong storyline that left me wanting more. So even though this movie scared me shitless, I'm definitely going to be watching the sequel. Um, I haven't watched it yet, but because I have other movies and other things in mind that I'm trying to watch before then. But I'm definitely going to watch the sequel, but I'm going to watch it during the daytime and not like I did with the first where I watched it at midnight. Like a fucking dumbass. Uh, moving on from it to moving away from horror completely, I also watched Second Act. Um, I heard some good things about this movie when it came out a couple of years ago, and since it's always playing on Showtime, I decided to finally watch it. I gotta say, I ended up liking this movie way more than I thought I would've. This movie stars J-Lo, Vanessa Hudgens, Leah Remini, and Milo... I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name, but you know him from shows like Gilmore Girls and As Jack on This Is Us. You know who I'm talking about. This movie is... It, I died laughing throughout most of this movie. And I love the plot wasn't something that's been overdone. I also think the cast had great chemistry, especially J-Lo's chemistry with both Vanessa Hudgens and Leah Remini, but her chemistry with Leah makes sense because they're best friends in real life. And, you know, their chemistry just naturally, you know transferred onto on the screen as well um I think J-Lo is a great actress to me I think she's a better actress than she is a musical artist so I really shouldn't be surprised that I like the movie but I definitely don't think the trailers did this movie justice um I know I said I've heard some good things about the movie but I feel like a lot of people maybe overlooked this one like I did because again the trailers didn't really show the movie to be anything super special but it is worth your time so if you're in the mood to laugh you know, spare an hour of your time and definitely check this movie out. It had some good little plot twists in it. And like I said, the plot wasn't super overdone. So it was really, really enjoyable. I definitely watch it a second time. So the last movie on my list is The Joker. I finally, finally watched this movie. And um, I was really interested in this movie because there was a lot of hype surrounding it. When I originally watched the trailer, it looked really, really boring. So I was like, well, I'll just wait for it to play on cable or for it to come out on DVD or a streaming service and I'll watch it then. So now that I have HBO Max and I saw that it was up there, I told my dad, I said, oh, let's finally watch the movie because he had interest in watching it as well. And I have to say that this movie was actually as good as the hype for the movie. So first off, I love a good origin story. That's why it was such a huge, huge fan of Once Upon a Time because I think the way that they gave the evil queen... Uh, a real background was really really interesting and from there I found myself drawn to a lot of origin story movies and shows and I think that the writers of this film crafted a really solid and believable origin story for how the Joker became to be the villain that he that we know him as now this is a man who suffered mistreatment throughout his life and childhood and really struggled with his mental health and was just simply disregarded until he couldn't take it any longer and tried to take his power back I think the point of this origin story was to show that evil isn't born, but it's made, and that the Joker is essentially a product of his own environment. This movie really tugged on my heartstrings a bit because I really felt for him, at least until he started killing people. And again, I think that was the point of the film. 
the writing, the directing, and I believe his name is pronounced Joquan Phoenix, his portrayal of the Joker was incredible. And if they make a sequel, I will definitely be supporting it in theaters, of course, after the vaccine is out and we've all taken it. Um, keeping on theme with the movies, it was announced last week that Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, Kristen Dunst, and a few other actors from previous Spider-Man movies would be joining Spider-Man 3, and I'm really looking forward to this because Marvel has the opportunity to really do something great here. Into the Spider-Verse was a great movie, so I would love to see them bring the Spider-Verse into their life live-action Spider-Man movies. It could give the third Spider-Man something really special by including the other Spider-Mans in it, and it would kind of keep on theme with the Into the Spider-Verse movie as well because he was gaining help from, you know, previous and older Spider-Mans. Especially since Tom Holland's Spider-Man will need all the help that he can get based off of how the last Spider-Man movie ended. And because, again, with Thanos' um, snap, everything, time and, and, and ages and things like that are all over the place. They're all kind of messed up. So it would be a great chance um, to use that opportunity to bring in the past Spider-Mans. Um, Doctor Strange is kind of like the flash of that universe where he can bend time and travel different universes. So obviously, we already know he's going to play a big part into the Spider-Man movie. So I can't wait to see all of this. Like I said, I hope that they um, write this movie well and that they really... Um, I hope they really take their time with this movie, but this is Marvel. They are known to have great writers on their team. So I'm not... I don't have any doubts about this movie being good. I think it's going to be a really, really good movie. I think it's going to be a solid end to the Spider-Man movies, unless they decide to like do four, uh, unless they decide to do two or three more Spider-Man movies with Tom Holland. I know each superhero tends to only get three movies, maybe four, if depending on their contract. But yeah, if this is the last Tom Holland Spider-Man movie, it's good, definitely going to go out with a bang. So, like I said before, when I jumped the gun, um. It was announced that an iCarly revival was ordered at Paramount+, Plus, which I'm not really down with because you know how I feel about reboots. And the, my problem with this particular revival was, first of all, the show only ended in 2012, so it hasn't even been a full 10 years since the show's ended. And let's not forget that Sam had a spinoff, so we kind of know what her character had been up to on Sam and Cat. So to me, there's no real need for a revival at this time because the characters aren't doing anything that'll be that interesting in the time since we last saw them. I'm assuming Carly is still in Italy or maybe she moved back to the US since it's been around like eight years. Sam is probably working a few jobs and probably has moved out of her and Kat's place and I'm sure Freddie is still a director of some sort. And to me, none of this is super interesting enough to watch a revival for. I don't think there's anything they could really do in a revival that would spark interest in me. And just simply put, not every show needs a revival or reboot. If anything, they could do what Friends is doing where they're just kind of doing a little special where you can create kind of like a two-hour movie or short of what the characters are now up to. But with Friends, it's been like 20-plus years since that show has ended. It makes sense for them to try to come back and do at least a little... Um, special. They don't, Friends doesn't need a revival or a reboot either. They gave you 10 seasons of that show, 10 years of that show. You don't really need any more, but a little two-hour special would be nice. That's a huge reason for why I got HBO Max in the first place. If iCarly wanted to do a two-hour special in like another 10 years, I'd be down to watch that as well, but as far as doing a whole revival for the show, I don't think it's really needed. 
Moving on, Ashanti and Keisha Cole were supposed to do their verses last weekend, but it ended up being canceled because Ashanti ended up coming down with COVID-19. And since she's been traveling a whole lot, that is not a total shock to me that she ended up getting it. I am praying for her to um, make a speedy recovery because COVID is no joke, but hopefully she's learned from this and learned to take more of the COVID guidelines seriously because I read articles that said that apparently she was warned when she was in Kenya about COVID and I don't think she listened to any of the warnings. But I'm wishing her a speedy recovery. Um, Their versus battle is rescheduled for January 9th. This weekend, I think Too Short and um, E-40 are doing their versus battle. I'm not, I don't really listen to them like that. I'm not really into their music or, you know, like that. So I won't be watching the versus battle, but I will be watching Ashanti and Keisha Cole. And I can't wait for January 9th. But until then, I hope Ashanti is resting up and taking care of herself. So like I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, because we're nearing the end of the year and this is the final episode of the year, it's only right that I do a top 10 ranking of the best albums and songs of the year. So I'm going to start off with the top 10 best songs of the year. So at number 10, I put BRB by Mahalia. One of the reasons why I really took to this song and loved it so much and why I think it deserves to be on the top 10 list is because it's beautifully produced and Mahalia's vocals sound so angelic. Her vocals are beautifully produced as well. I also think her conviction on this song just stuck out to me so much and it was just... Her conviction was really, really convincing. Like, I really felt like she... I really believed all of her emotions that she was expressing in the song. Because you can really hear the longing in her voice. I also think the lyrics are extremely poignant as well. Aside from her voice, the piano is a key standout on this track. And like I said, I think for... BRB is a top standout single of 2020. It's really only on an EP. I think she called it the Isolation Tapes. So it's not really an album cut or anything. But it's so good, it deserves to be on the top 10. At number 9 is Dying For Your Love by Snow Allegra. This is one of the more underrated songs of 2020, but still a standout. Dying For Your Love is everything a good R&B song should be. It's tender and soulful with well-written lyrics to match. Snow has one of the prettiest voices I've heard in a really long time. And the tenderness and emotion she brings into her music is something... I also haven't heard an R&B in a long time. Snow is definitely a part of the new wave of great R&B artists reviving traditional types of R&B music. And honestly, I've had this song on repeat ever since July. I'm pretty sure it's on my um, 100 songs playlist on Spotify Wrapped. P2J, who produced the song, is also a great producer who always gives songs nice layers of Afro beats, no matter how subtle or prominent. It's no different on this song, and it gives it a tiny bit of bounce and groove that helps make the song so addicting to me. Simply put, I absolutely love this song, and though it's underrated, I do believe it is one of the best songs of the year. At number 8, we have Small Things by JoJo. Small Things is one of the best written songs of 2020 because it's just so descriptive. You can picture vividly everything she's saying in the song with lines like, quote, I found your shirt clean in my apartment and it made it worse and I swear you couldn't even see the hurt I swallowed hard and coupled with the relatability of the words you can feel every emotion Jojo is expressing I'm sure most people have felt this emotion she's singing about I also really love the self-reflection in the song and the vulnerability that comes along with that 
Jojo is also a great vocalist and that's what makes takes this song from being good to great because it's really the power of her vocals that makes this song so raw and real and also convincing. Small Things should be on everyone's list for 2020. At number 7 we have Comfortable by Her. When this song was released at the top of the year, I had it on replay constantly. I'm surprised it didn't make the top of my Spotify rap list because I was obsessed with it. I literally had to actually take the break from li- take a break from listening to the song because I played it so much. What sticks out to me the most about this track is the guitar because it's beautifully produced and it really enhances the song. Comfortable is sexy in a very intimate and no pun intended but comfortable way. The ease of making love to someone you feel so comfortable and safe with is really reflected on the song. Her is another great vocalist and that's further proven on songs like this one. She's not hitting any crazy big notes or belting out the words, but the softness of her voice while still managing to be soulful too is definitely a skill. At number 6, I have Dive by Victoria Monet. Dive is a damn near perfect song, I'm obsessed with it. From the production to the lyrics, there's no flaws. I love how Victoria embraced her sexuality on the song and her confidence is a major reason why the song is so sexy. She's emphasizing the importance for a woman to gain her pleasure too. DeMaio produced this track and I think he's one of the greatest producers ever. Honestly, you know, between his production on Lucky Day's Painted album and his production on Jaguar, he's definitely became, become one of my favorites. The production on this track sounds so live and the horns are to die for. The horns really make the song sound grand. And you can really hear the major influences of, you know, 60s and 70s music um, in this song and, you know, throughout Jaguar, but it's much more modern and fresh. It doesn't sound like anything out. The song is just unique in an era of music where everything sounds the same. And that's what makes Dive a standout and one of the best songs of the year. It's such a breath of fresh air. At number five is Body Language by Big Sean, featuring Jenea Yuko and Ty Dolla Sign. Part of what makes this song so good is because Sean and Janae have incredible musical chemistry. Quite frankly, Janae brings out the best in Sean musically. She adds a soulfulness that he sometimes doesn't have on his own and that's prominent on this track. Part of what makes it so good is that it is so soulful. She also adds sensuality to the song as well. The standout part about this track is the production. I think Key Wayne utilized the sample extremely well and it gives the song a whole lot of soul. And that's what makes the song have that feel-good appeal to it. It's just addicting. I also really love the 808s and the bass because it gives the song an incredible groove. I also think adding Ty Dolla Sign to the track also helped add the old-school vibe that the sample sets in the song. And adding Ty to any song gives it that sauce for sure. That's why he named his album featuring Ty Dolla Sign. He's a great collaborator. At number four, we have one of my absolute favorites, which is For Us by... Division. For Us is one of my absolute favorite songs of the year, and the moment I first heard it, I fell in love with it. What makes this song so great is that it's authentic. You can clearly tell that For Us is inspired by two, early 2000s R&B, and it sounds like it without using a sample or sounding too dated. Daniel Daly has an incredible voice, and his falsetto and his runs on this track are heavenly and really make the song what it is. Back in the day, you had artists like Usher who had these breathtaking falsettos that would really elevate a track and give it a lot of emotion, and Daniel Daly does the same thing on this song. 
And I think 1985 is a great producer, and he and Brian Michael Cox did their damn thing on the keyboards on this track. If you love R&B as much as I do, you'll really love this song. It's incredible, and it definitely deserves to be on everybody's top, at least top 20 songs list of 2020. At number three is Forfeit by Kiana Lay Day featuring Lucky Day. Kiana and Lucky Day are both great vocalists, and they're a match made in heaven on this song. They have incredible chemistry. What I really love about Forfeit, other than the great vocals, is the production, of course. The production is very reminiscent of gospel and church music through the strings and some organs. I think that's what I hear in the track, and it gives this a lot of soul. Kiana always sings with a lot of passion, and that's no different on this song. It's just one of those tracks where you can't just listen to it once. You have to listen to it again and again, and I'm surprised that it's not talked about more. I really do think it's an incredible record, and it definitely deserves, like I said, like I'm going to say with every song on this list, it deserves to be on the top 10 list. You know, you can listen to that song and hear it for yourself. It's incredible. At number two is Point of View by Ariana Grande. This song is just simply breathtaking. From Ariana's stunning vocals to the beautiful strings to the message of the song, the song is just perfect. Ariana's background vocals also enhance the already beautiful song. I also think this is a really well-written track and one of the best-written songs of the year. Um, particularly uh, this line, quote, I want to love me the way that you love me. For all of my pretty and all of my ugly too, I'd love to see me from your point of view. This line is one of the best lines I've heard from any song this year, maybe ever. This song is just about loving yourself and viewing yourself positively in the way that other people view you. And with the last couple of years that Ariana has had told through her music, it's really nice to hear a song like this come from her. There's nothing else really left to say except that it's really good to hear music like this again. And I think that for a lot of young girls growing up listening to Ariana Grande's music, this is a special record because maybe it'll start teaching you to love yourself. And despite all the other messages that are told in music today, this is a really positive and beautiful self-loving song. It's uh, At the moment I heard it, I was already kind of crafting my top 10 song list. I had to take... I had to take some songs off and replace it with this one because it's just so beautiful. It's just undeniable. If you didn't like any other song off of Positions, you definitely should have liked Point of View because it's just undeniably good. And drum roll, please. The song at number one is Hate the Club by Kehlani featuring Masigo on the saxophone. I'm sure it's not a shock at all that Hate the Club ended up being my number one pick. First of all, Masigo is really what makes the song so special because the sax is the true heart and soul of the song, and I think it forced Kehlani to expose some of her soul and vulnerability on the track. Hate the Club is extremely well written and the lyrics are so relatable to me that I can't help but sing my heart out to the song every time it comes on. It just, I really should start saying songs like that have really, have really high singability. Like, Hate the Club is just one of those songs you have to sing your heart out to when it comes on. Kehlani is always so raw and real in her music, and I think that's a part of my attraction to the song. It's just so damn addicting, y'all. I don't think I'll ever get sick of it, and no other song released this year will come close or top Hate the Club, which is why it's at number one. And I think a lot of people, if they didn't choose Hate the Club, a lot of like blogs and and um, critics like Rolling Stone, a lot of them, a lot of songs from Kehlani's It Was Good Until It Wasn't, 
made like top 10 top 20 top 30 songs list it's like it was good until it wasn't was an undeniable album and this song is definitely one of the best of the year and to me the absolute best so moving on to the top 10 best albums of the year we're gonna start off with the weekends after hours album at number 10 what makes this album so good is the 80s influenced production and the strong themes and stories told throughout the album on after hours the weekend took his real life and emotions and kind of villainized himself into this horror movie like character the themes are so strong that even without the music videos you hear it and picture it like a movie after hours truly sounds like a movie score to the movie of his life it's very cinematic and i love that as someone who is a movie nerd um the same way i am with music an artist like the weekend blending both worlds together like that was is incredible and i took to this album immediately because of that the weekend is a great writer and i think the writing on this album is his best yet in a lot of ways i think this is his darkest material yet but it's well hidden in metaphors and symbolism which is a test to his great writing skills it took me months before i realized the true nature of blinding lights and just how dark it really is despite how upbeat the song is um, and there's a lot of songs like that on this album as well. I also love how consistent the theme is in the production as well. None of the songs sound out of place and they all have the same subtle layer of darkness and broodiness in them despite some of them being upbeat like I said. The standout tracks on this album are Blinding Lights, Faith, In Your Eyes, and Snow Child. And Faith is definitely an honorable mention. It's not in my top 10 songs list but it would definitely be in the top 20. At number nine is Amuse and Her Feelings by Division. This is a really great R&B album and one of the blueprints of what R&B music should sound like in the 2020s. Division created a perfect blend of traditional styles and modern styles on this album, all while staying true to their own uniqueness. They, you know, they stay true to their own sound. The production and vocals throughout this album is really what makes this such a great project. Daniel Daly and 1985 have incredible chemistry. You don't see a lot of singer-producer duos anymore, but they are a perfect fit. I also really love the theme of this album as well. This album plays on the idea of having a single muse, and each song is like a piece of the story of the narrator and the muse's relationship, like the ups and downs of any relationship. It's just a really consistent and cohesive album that hits better if you listen to it in the order of the track list instead of hitting shuffle and letting the songs play that way it's um it's really essential for you to listen to it top to bottom in that order because it really does tell a story and that's one of the best aspects of this album the standout tracks are miss me for us flawless do it well part three and dangerous city at number eight is detroit 2 by big sean surprise surprise you know he was gonna be on my list Big Sean is my favorite rapper because I really connect with his music emotionally. He always manages to create albums that really speak to me and just speak to my soul in the moments that I really needed it. And Detroit 2 is no different. I really needed this album. The themes are about mental health, spirituality, and inequality. Something that the world, including me, really needed this year. What makes this album so powerful are the lyrics. Sean is a great writer and he writes lyrics that are thought provo provoking, which is why you really have to sit with his music because you'll miss some things the first few times. 
Sean also has some of the best and clever wordplay in the game. I think Hitboy and Key Wayne really provided consistently great production throughout this album, and the things Sean has been through the past few years made for interesting, deep, and relatable stories throughout this album. The music was personally indistinctly Big Sean, so it was only right that he named his album Detroit 2. I think that out of all of the rap albums released this year, I think Detroit 2 really hit the nail on the head on what a lot of black people were feeling and going through this year. And um, this album was definitely worth the wait and definitely one of the best albums of the year. Standout tracks on Detroit 2 are Harder Than My Demons, Deep Reverence, Body Language, Guard Your Heart, and Down Life. At number 7 is Good To Know by JoJo. This is hands down JoJo's best album. She's gone through a lot of hard times as a child's artist, but now as an adult, it's clear that she's gotten to know herself a lot better and it's reflected on this album. Good to Know is filled with self-reflection, honesty, and vulnerability. A lot of the songs I included on my top 10 list have these aspects about them, which to me makes them standouts. It's also the only album that has a deluxe version that complements the original. JoJo's vocals sound as great as ever and the writing on this album is amazing. And that's what makes this album a standout compared to the other albums released this year. That raw honesty is hard to come by, but JoJo gave us this on this album and did it well. Standout tracks are Lonely Hearts, Small Things, and Man. At number six is Riley by Riley. Now, technically this is an EP, but this is my podcast. These are my rules, and I don't care. (laughs) I've been a fan of Amber Riley since her days on Glee, so I've been a fan for about 10 years, which means I've been waiting a long-ass time for her to release a project. And after almost 10 years, we finally got one, and it was so worth the wait. Riley was a true introduction into who Amber truly is as an artist, and I think she pulled it off extremely well. When I hear this EP, I hear Riley, who is raw with her emotions, bold, confident, and honest. This EP is only six songs long, but she managed to give and put every emotion and story that was essential to who she is as an artist and person into this EP, which is hard to do so on an EP that's only six songs, but she pulled it off. There's a song for everything on this project. Sexy stuff, vulnerability, love songs, and songs that just make you want to dance. Riley is such a great project, and I can't wait to hear her debut album, because if an EP is this good, I know an album is going to be even better. The standout tracks off of Riley are BGE, Creepin', and A Moment. At number five is Positions by Ariana Grande, because, of course, Ariana has had one hell of a winning streak in her music career, and Positions is just another win for her as far as I'm concerned. Despite what music critics have said about this album, I think Positions was a perfect closer to the amazing trilogy that she started in 2018 with her Sweetener album. Positions wrapped up all of those stories nicely and gave a glimpse into the next chapter of Ariana's sound. Sonically, Positions is Dangerous Woman's sister record, which to me, Dangerous Woman is her best album. Um, So the fact that Positions comes close to Dangerous Woman says all you need to know. It took the maturity that started with Dangerous Woman, but refined it in a more mature way, if that makes sense. You can hear the confidence in this music. The use of various strings throughout the production on this album was consistent and really enhanced the songs. This album marks the shift of Ariana changing her sound and going from pop into R&B. Her vocals throughout um, the Positions album are great, of course, and you can hear the growth 
from teen pop star to a grown woman. Simply, this album is just full of great songs. And I know a lot of people were expecting this album to have deeper messages like Thank You Next and like On Sweetener. But sometimes a good album or a great album can be great because the music is just great. And I think that's, you know, I think that's the case on Positions. The music is just undeniably good. The standout tracks on Positions are Point of View, West Side, Safety Net, and Just Like Magic. At number four is Chilumbo by Janae Ayuko. I've been talking about this album non-stop since it dropped in March, so I'm sure it's no surprise that it's in the top five. I haven't loved an album this much in a long time, and I mean the way I love this album. The way I love this album, I haven't loved an album like this in a long time. Like, there are a lot of albums that I really like and really love, but, you know, connecting, the way I connect with this album is something I, I haven't connected with an album like this in a while, and I think it caught me off guard because I thought, you know, well, maybe I, as much as I love music, maybe I just don't connect that way with a lot of of albums anymore, but I think that I've kind of been dissatisfied with music, the quality of a lot of music the past few years, but Chilumbo was different. It kind of took me back to being connected to albums like The Pink Print and to Confessions and to Fame and Fortune and things like that, so I think it caught me off guard and I just am obsessed with this album, but even aside from my bias, this album is just, this album deserves to be praised. And, um, I think a part of the reason why it's such a good album is that it's just, it's truly a healing album. And I think Janae really captured true magic on Chilumbo. This album has stories about trauma, grief, sadness, happiness, spirituality, and healing. So the long length of this album makes sense. And because the music is so good, I don't mind it. And I don't think a lot of people minded the length, the long length of this album either. It's hard to have an album with a long length like this without it having fillers, but Janae avoids this because the album has a solid and strong theme throughout. Janae's vocals are as dreamy as the production is, and the album is just extremely soothing to me. Janae is an excellent writer, and I think she evolved into an even better one on this album because so many songs are just poetic and well-written. Which just makes you feel everything she's feeling. Chilumbo truly captured the range of human emotions, and no other album put out this year has managed to evoke the depth that Janae has with this album, and I think that's why I connect with it so deeply, because it is an album that, it is an album that is composed of everything you feel as a human being, from grief to sadness to happiness to love, and I think that's why a lot of people, even outside of myself, connect with this album. With, you know, and especially with how horrible of a year 2020 has been, this album, I think, was just needed for a lot of people. The standout tracks on Chialumbo are Trying to Smoke, Triggered, Surrender, 10K, 10,000 Hours, it's spelled 10K Hours, but yeah, 10,000 Hours, and Pussy Fairy, aka On The Way. At number three is Jaguar by Victoria Monet, because sonically, this album doesn't sound like anything out right now. This album is rooted deeply in blackness, and that's part of the reason why this album sounds so authentic. Victoria is staying true to herself, and as a black woman, seeing another black woman like Victoria radiate confidence like this makes me feel good, especially when the world tries to make us feel like less or tell us that we're not as good as our white peers are. This album's overall theme is Victoria confidently embracing female sexuality 
And though it's common for women in music to do that in 2020, Victoria's spin on it is just so effortlessly sensual that it stands apart from any other sexual music being released. Jaguar has brought back the sensuality in R&B music that's been missing for a long time in a way that's reminiscent to Janet Jackson. You can hear the influence of 60s and 70s music in the production, shout out to DeMille who produced essentially this whole project, but somehow it still manages to sound modern and fresh. The live sound, particularly the horns that are consistent throughout the album, makes a lot of the music sound rich, smooth, and sexy. Jaguar is a great example of being inspired by music that came before you, but making the music your own. This album is just a breath of fresh air in an era of R&B music that needs to pick up the pace, and it just gives you life. The standout tracks on this album are Dive, Moment, Ass Like That, and Jaguar. At number two is It Was Good Until It Wasn't by Kehlani. It Was Good Until It Wasn't is an album about self-reflection and true honesty. This is something Kehlani is really good at. She's an artist who is constantly self-aware and is always looking to evolve, and this album is a true reflection of this. The honest nature of It Was Good Until It Wasn't is very refreshing in an era of music where half of the songs are very one-dimensional. Songs like Toxic, Everybody Business, and Serial Lover showcase Kehlani looking within herself and seeing where she needs to improve, whether it's relationship-wise or just personally. And songs like these really stuck with me because one, I could relate, or two, I just really appreciated the honesty. Kehlani is also a really good writer, and that's why this album feels and sounds like such a personal body of work for its listeners, and you can relate to your you can relate it to your own life. This raw and brutal honesty is hard to come by, and that's why this album is a standout. It's one of the best written albums of the year. Standout tracks on this album are Hate the Club, Everybody Business, Grieving, and F and MU, which is just fucking makeup. That's what it stands for. And at number one is Kiki by Kiana Lay Day, of course. This album is by far the best album of 2020 due to its emotional depth, great production, and equally great writing. It's a shame that it's highly underrated, but it's truly a gem. After listening to this album, you get true insight into Kiana's life and what she's been through, and it's such an honest album that you feel like you know her personally after listening to it. While listening to this album, it kind of forces you to address some of your own emotions. And albums that do this should be praised because it's hard to pull these emotions out of your audience. The production is breathtaking, with the piano and the guitar being the true standouts on the songs, and they enhance Kiana's beautiful vocals. The acoustic sound throughout the album gives it more of a personal feel because it sounds like Kiana and her production team and writers were all just having jam sessions in like a small room or studio rather than a big flashy studio around a whole bunch of people. Kiki, simply put, is a therapy session in album form and from the beginning to the end, you hear Kiana come to some self-realizations and this album is just a breath of fresh air for that reason. The standout tracks off of Kiki are Forfeit, Plenty More, Protection, Attention, and Chocolate. Some honorable mentions include Amani's Limbo album, Russ's Shake the Snow Globe album, and Tiana Taylor's album, The Album, which is, it's really just called The Album. I like these albums a lot, but they just didn't make the cut. Now, if I dragged it and I did top 20, then these albums definitely would have made the cut because I really, really do like them. And also Chloe and Halle's Ungodly album. That was really good too. 
So this concludes my top 20 wrap up for the best albums and songs of the year. Do If you agree with my list, let me know. If you don't, definitely tell me your top 10 albums and songs. Obviously, this is all, anybody's top 10 um, rankings is going to have some bias. It's going to be different. And I enjoy looking at other people's lists to see what albums and songs they really took to. But this is my personal top 10 rankings. Um... And we've come towards the end of the episode, but before I end the episode, I want to talk about the song of the week. And the song of the week is For Us by Division, of course. It's the best, one of the best. I think if Hate the Club didn't exist, it would be the best R&B song of the year because, like I said, you can really hear the influence of early 2000s R&B, but it stands on its own without a sample. And I think that... Division is a highly underrated group that deserves more love and for us is just such a standout track. So if you haven't heard the song before, definitely check it out and let me know what you think. But we have come towards the end of the episode, the finale of the year. Again, thank you guys so much for supporting this podcast all year, from sharing it to your social medias, to listening to it, telling your friends about it. I really appreciate it. I want to thank my mom, my dad, my sister, my nana, because they never miss a single episode. They always share my episodes and my podcast on their social medias. Always, doesn't matter um, if it's the actual episode or if it's just me giving you know, people updates on what's going on with the podcast. They are always quick to share it and support. And I love you guys so much. Um, I wouldn't be able to really do this podcast without your support. So it means the world to me. And I love you guys. And um, if you want to support this podcast further, then definitely head to my anchor page or my website, www.listentomespeak.com. And you can um, donate to my listener donations and really help me elevate this podcast for next year. I'd really, really appreciate it. If you want to keep up with me on social media, again, my website is www.listentomespeak.com. And it has all the links to my social medias, including YouTube. Um, So again, I just want to say thank you for listening to me speak. And Listen to Me Speak will be back next year, 2021. Stay tuned, guys. Be kind to yourselves.